So if you've not been with us the past several weeks, we are in the midst of a series in the book of 1 Samuel. We like at Hope to spend the beginning part of a year studying through uh, one of the books of the Bible and just uh, digging in a little bit and hearing from the narrative, from the story, all that God intends to say. And so we've been following this journey of uh, Israel discovering a king for their kingdom. And the story has lots of ups and downs, way more downs than ups, kind of like the story of our lives. We never really seem to hit God's standard a lot of the times. And Israel is a good mirror of us, as much as we'd like to not compare ourselves to them. And so the the story we got to last week is the the point of the story when God picks David. And there's this this wonderful uh, contrast between how man sees the world and how God sees the world. Man sees the world with his eyes or her eyes, right? And, and so we perceive based upon what we see. But God sees in a whole different way. The Scripture tells us that God sees with his heart. And what that means is that while man perceives, God purposes. And so what God intends to do, he does. He sees it into action with his heart. And so when God chooses David, God chooses David from his heart. The scriptures have often been read that David was a man after God's own heart. And I suggested to us last week that's actually not the best reading. That it's probably much better to say that, that David was on God's heart rather than that God was on David's heart. Now, that doesn't mean that David's not a, bad, not a good guy. Of course, he's lots of great characteristics. But it's God's intentions that are always brought through. And the story has all the way brought us this morning, this Easter Sunday morning, to the very famous story of David and Goliath. And we often leave this story for the kids. And I'm not sure if they're talking about David and Goliath back there this morning or not. I think they probably aren't. Uh, But we're going to take just a little bit of time and re-examine this story that has often been left for children, and we just kind of set it aside and say, isn't that cool, isn't that unique? And try to dig just a little bit deeper to see the heart of God that sees and that purposes and all that God is accomplishing in the world as is told through this story. So as we jump into this, I just want to share a little bit with you about struggle that I have in my life. Um, For most of my adult life, I have struggled with anxiety. Uh, I can easily get overwhelmed by circumstances. By nature, I wouldn't say that I'm a worrier. I don't spend a lot of time worrying about things. But there are times in my life when anxiety hits me like a ton of bricks. In fact, this past week has been one of those moments. So some of you, uh, we've been sharing, you've been praying for me, and I've so appreciated that. The truth is that when I was a junior in college, all of a sudden I started to have these strange feelings in my body. Uh, So much so that I could no longer even sit in a classroom. I get so nauseated. And, and my body temperature spiked so, so high, and uh, my stomach felt like it was in my throat, and my heart was beating fast, and I had no clue what was going on. I was this healthy, skinny at the time guy, and sitting through college, trying to pay attention to, to boring classes, and all of a sudden, these feelings would come on me, and I had no idea what was going on. I remember going home and telling my parents, this is how I'm feeling. I've, and my dad's like, you're going to the doctor, and you're going to get a full checkup, <laughs> And so, uh, whatever. So the doctor did all these checkups and tried to diagnose all these different things, and of course, nothing was the case. I ended up having to take an entire semester off of college because 
I had no idea what was going on in my body. All I knew is that I couldn't sit in enclosed spaces. And in other spaces, I was constantly having these feelings. And so over time and over eliminating other things, the doctor began to pinpoint this idea of physical anxiety, that this was just a physical reality for my body. And I began to understand parts of the human reality that I could never comprehend before, things like synapses and and weird things in your brain that sometimes fire and sometimes don't. Chances are yours were working better than mine a lot of the time, apparently, is how it works. And, um, And through all that and through some counseling and through some different things, was able to sort of get a handle on this reality. And I thought that was the end of that. And so I took my semester off and I went back to college. And college was great and all of these things. And then went into my first job, and, and about a year into my first job, things were going great. There was no stress. There was no pressure. And all of a sudden, those same feelings started to come back to me. And it had nothing to do, nothing related with any of those things. And the truth of the matter is that anxiety for me is a constant battle. It pops up at the most inopportune times without any warning, oftentimes without any worry or any other outside reality, And there it is. And when it is there, it is intense. And it is difficult. And I would call it a giant in my life. It is a giant. When it shows up, it is towering. And it is difficult to face. And it is difficult to figure out. And maybe you're listening to my story thinking, what is anxiety? Right? That seems odd. Like sometimes I worry. If I didn't study for my test and I've got to go take my test, I feel anxiety. Your anxiety and what I feel are a little bit different, right? Still anxiety, but a little bit different. But maybe your giant is something else. Maybe your giant is depression. Maybe it's how you view yourself. Every time you look in the mirror, you just look at yourself and think, I'm not what I want to be, and I can never get there. Maybe your anxiety is affliction. Maybe you look at my uh, anxiety. Maybe your giant is affliction. Maybe you look at my affliction and think, that's small beans compared to what I've had. And guess what? I admit that. Maybe you faced a cancer diagnosis or a much more serious or chronic diagnosis and you've stared it in the face and it is a towering giant. Maybe it's not affliction, maybe it's struggle. Maybe you're just grappling through relationships that are broken and everything you try to do to fix them doesn't work and it is staring down at you like a giant. Maybe that relationship is in your immediate family and you can't get away from it. It is a giant. Or maybe it's sin. Maybe there are issues in your life where you are just not following God's standard. And even though you desperately want to, everything you try to do to change the situation doesn't work. Have you been there? That's the story of my life. And you constantly battle against this reality in your life. And it is like a towering giant. If they were keeping score, it would beat you up more than you would ever inflict pain on it. What's your giant this morning? See, the story of David and Goliath isn't just a story for little kids. It's a story for everyone who is a little kid in faith, and that's all of us. We need stories like this to help us root our minds in the reality of what it means to serve a God who is greater than this world. Whatever your giant is this morning, whether it's physical, 
and affliction, whether it's some other kind of struggle, whether it's a sin issue, and I would wager to guess it's all three, because that's what I, how I would describe mine. This story this morning gives us hope that there is a better future for all of us. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to 1 Samuel 17. If you don't have one, don't even worry about it. You've heard this story before in part. I'm going to read it to you. It's a long chapter, so I'm going to read pieces of it, not the whole thing. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war. Remember, the Philistines and the Israelites are like arch enemies. They are constantly fighting with each other. They pitched their camp at Ephes Damim between Soko and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley in between them. So you get the picture. We've seen this, this, this battle picture in 1 Samuel before. You've got one side on one side of the valley, the other side on the other, and then this open valley in between where the battle is probably going to take place if anyone's willing to move down off the mountain. And there's only one guy who's willing to come in the valley, and we know his name is Goliath. Fast forward to verse 20. Early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse, his dad, had directed. Uh, David's brothers were fighting in this battle, and Jesse uh, wanted his youngest son, David, to take them supplies. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and asked his brother how they were doing. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. And David heard it. And whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage. And we don't know what um, King Saul's daughter looks like, so we don't know if that's a good prize or a bad prize, right? Just kidding. I'm sure she was beautiful. Uh, He'll give his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes. Now that's great news, right? We just paid our taxes. So are we willing to fight the giant now? We We get a wife and we get no taxes, right? I don't think so. I'm still not willing to battle the. Verse 26, David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes the disgrace from Israel? And this is what David says of him. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what, had been, what they'd been saying. This is what will be done for him. When Eliab, listen to this. If you've got an older brother or an older sister, tell me you haven't heard this before. When Eliab, David's older brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, What have you come down here for, David? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? Notice that he had to mention it was just a few, right? All Dad trusts you with is like three sheep, and now you went and left them to come down here. Good grief. Does this not sound like an older sibling already? Have you heard this? Have they been told stuff like this to you? 
Who'd you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are. Man, he is really getting to it, isn't he? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch this battle. Now, what have I done, David said? Can I not even speak? Right here, now you, this is you as the younger child. Or maybe you were the older child. So maybe this is your younger brother or sister. Can I even say anything? Am I not allowed to speak? Can I even defend myself here? You're already saying everything I've done. He turned away to someone else, figured, that's it, I'm done with you, older brother, let's find someone else to talk to. And brought up the same matter, and the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Well, everyone has already lost heart on account of this Philistine. They are hiding from him. Your servant will go and fight him. So David is offering to fight. Unbelievable. Saul replied, you were not able to go out against the Philistine and fight him. You're a young man. He's been a warrior from his youth. And then David goes into to stories of how he killed a lion and, and a bear and did all these unbelievable things. And fast forward to verse 38. Saul dressed, tried to dress David in his tunic. He put his coat of armor on him, a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. He said, I can't go in these because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. You remember the story. He's not going to wear any armor. Verse 40. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in hand, he approached the Philistine. Now, can I just spend a moment correcting some popular mythology here? We often think of David as finding little pebbles on the stream, and there's this tiny little pebble that he whips around in some crazy sling concoction, and somehow it hits the giant in the forehead and he dies. Right? That's how the story ends. Most historians believe that the stones that are spoken of were at least as big as a tennis ball. Okay? These were things that shepherds would use to kill wild beasts who were coming after their sheep. So this would hurt if you got smacked in the forehead with it. I'm thinking, right? So this is, this is what David is doing. He's using the tools he knows how to use, right? He's not going to use the stuff that someone else has given him. He's using the tools that he, that he knows how to use. Verse 48, as the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So that day David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine, and he killed him. I have no idea what your giant is in your life that you are facing right now. But I know this. This story says that sometimes the weak are victorious. Sometimes the shepherd boy slays the giant. And he doesn't do it by matching up with the giant just like the giant. He does it by having everything that God has given him to use. But if we ended there, then I would just be telling you a feel-good story. And you could get that anywhere. Someone could give you a good moral teaching that, hey, every once in a while, you've got to strap on your big boy pants and go face 
the bully in the, in the, bu- in the, in the backyard and do your best, right? You, I tell that to my kids sometimes because that's good life advice. Sometimes you've got to do it. Uh, Jackson uh, gets a lot of anxiety, I think, straight from me. I, when I found out that I had that and I began asking relatives, there it is, all through my family tree. Right? Thanks for telling me, everyone. So, <laughs> I'm, I'm like struggling for three months to figure out what's wrong with me, and there you all are. Yeah, we did that. We had that. Well, thanks. But I can see it in my oldest son already. And it torments me that he struggles with the same thing. But at his 10-year checkup, he needed to get blood work done. And so Rachel, in the midst of this furiously busy week, graciously took Jackson to get blood taken yesterday morning. And I, did, I said, Rach, not only can I not go with you, but I can't even help you get him ready to go, right? Because I'll just be a mess. And so she took him, and from what I'm told, it was a scene, but he did it. Sometimes you've got to just step up and give it your best shot. But that's moralism. We know that that's true in life sometimes. Sometimes you've got to face the, the person that's pushing you around. Sometimes you've got to face your struggles head on and, and be who you are and be okay in that. But if it ends there, then there's no power in that. It's all about you and whether or not you can do it. And for most of us, we're, we're way worse at this than we think we are. We love to pep ourselves up in the green room, but when we get out on the stage and have to do it, we're way more talk than we are action. Oh, I can handle this. I can handle this. And secretly we're saying, I hope this never comes my way again because I can't handle this. So we don't need moralism. We need a bigger story than moralism. If this is just about that you've got to strap on your, your, your shoes and go out there and get dirty and fight fight the giant in your life, if that's all I have for you, then you should never come back here again. That's all the world tells us all the time. Go do your best. Do your hardest. Work harder. Be better. Be stronger. Fight your giants. You can do it. The weak wins sometimes. True, true, and true. But church, if the resurrection is true, then we are tapped into something way bigger than that storyline of the world. So we need to read this story again, not literally, but through a whole different lens. We need to ask ourselves, why are there even giants in our world? Why do giants even exist in our world? Why is there anxiety? Why is there depression? Why is there cancer? Why is there AIDS? Why is there evil in our world? Why are there bullies? Why are are there, there all kinds of social issues that oppress? Why do they even exist? This story is telling a bigger story than just your personal giant. See, Goliath stands for something way bigger than just a big giant that happened to be in the battlefield that day. Listen to the description of Goliath. A champion named Goliath, this is verse 4, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. Listen to this. His height was six cubits in a span. So you might have a note in your Bible that says that's like nine and a half feet tall. So this is a huge dude, right? If any of you watched uh, the NCAA basketball last night, you saw people who were seven feet tall. Imagine two feet taller than that. His height was six cubits in a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head. He wore a coat of seal armor bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. That's like 150 pounds. It probably His armor weighed more than David. On his legs he wore bronze greaves and he had bronze javelin. 
that he slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. And Goliath stood out amongst the ranks and shouted disparities against God and his people. See, Goliath is representative of evil in our world. There's really no other way to read this story. Think about it. Think about the descriptions we have of Goliath in this story. The first thing we're told is that he is a giant. right? Whether he's exactly six cubits and a half, nine feet, nine inches, you know, we'll take it literally at its word. Whether that's true or not, who, it doesn't really matter. The, what the, the, the author is trying to tell us is that he's enormous. And every time we find giants in the pages of Scripture, we find the same thing. Opposition to the move of the people of God. Every single time. There are two prominent times it happens in Scripture before this story. The first is in Genesis chapter 6. We have right before God sends the flood to judge the world, and He chooses Noah out of that because there's such corruption and evil in the world. One of the descriptors of the people of that day was that giants walked amongst them. There's this word used there, Nephilim. Just men of stature is what it means. Huge men that came out of these these, uh, wrong uh, unions of the daughters of men and the gods of the world, right? So the the presence of giants in Genesis chapter 6 is really meant to signify the reality of evil moving against the people of God. The other most prominent place that giants are spoken of is when uh, Moses sends spies into the land. Do you remember this? And they send spies into the land, and two of the spies come back and say, this land is awesome. We need to go. Right? There's everything we need there. And the rest of the spies say what? Why shouldn't we go? There are giants in the land. And so once again, the opposition to the move of God. See, Goliath is not just a solitary giant. And David will find out it's not just a solitary warrior. There's a bigger story going on here. Goliath is representative of evil. Did you notice how many times the number six showed up in this story? It's not coincidence. Six cubits. His spearhead was 600 pounds. Or the number six always speaks of evil in the pages of Scripture. And what is Goliath constantly doing? He's mocking God and the people of God. Constantly, constantly, constantly. And the descriptions that we read here of the armor of Goliath, if you read them in the original Hebrew language, what they actually speak of is an armor that is in the form of a, catch this, serpent. Goliath is a picture of evil. Where do we meet a serpent in the pages of Scriptures? Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Listen to the first words of Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he went on to tempt and mislead and corrupt all of humanity. All the way till we get to verse 14 of Genesis chapter 3, and this is what it says. This is God's uh, punishment on man and woman and on the serpent. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly. You will eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. Do you hear this? So what God is setting up is a constant battle between what is known as the seed of the serpent 
and the seed of the woman, or between evil and the people of God. Do you see it? And so what do we have in Goliath? He's a seed of the serpent. No question about it. He's the picture of evil in this moment. And he is forcefully coming at the people of God. Friends, whatever giant you are facing this morning, or you will face in the near future, or you have faced, it is a small picture of the grand brokenness of our world. This world is not how God intended it to be. Sin and corruption and pride and rebellion have tarnished all of this existence. And Goliath, as he stands towering over everyone on that battlefield, is testament to the fact that this world appears to be broken beyond repair. Constant battle going on. But if we stop here, now I've just made you depressed. (laughs) So we can't stop here. We've got to go even deeper into this story to figure out what's going on. Because David is actually not representative of you. We love to read the stories of the Bible and juxtapose ourselves with the main characters because it feels good. In fact, most of our lives revolve around ourselves. Maybe you're better than me, but my life, pretty much, as much as I would rather it not, pretty much it revolves around me all the time. That's awful to say, but unfortunately the reality of sin is that that happens so much, so often. So when we read, read the Scriptures, we have two choices, really. We can read them with ourselves in mind, and so this story's got to be telling me something about me. It's got to be telling me something about me. Oftentimes, it's why we go to the Scriptures and say, man, I didn't get anything out of this this morning. Why? Because we're looking for something about us. But the Bible is not a story about you. You are a major beneficiary, but you are not the main character. An alternate reading of the Bible is we read the Bible to find out, what is this telling me about Jesus? And now the whole paradigm is blown wide open. And suddenly this no longer rests on your hands, but in the hands of God Himself. See, David is not you. As much as we love to to think we're battling giants, and I'm not putting it down, like I've told you my story, we are battling giants. But as much as we like to think we're like David, the truth is we're nothing like David. David is very much a picture in this story of Jesus himself. Let me retell the story of David up to this point and tell me whose story it sounds remarkably like. David is out tending sheep, and all of a sudden, Saul show, or Samuel shows up and anoints him as king. And as soon as he's anointed as king, the spirit rushes on him. And then the next part of the story, what do we have? We have David being brought into the wilderness. What's going on in the wilderness? Listen to, listen to this description in 1 Samuel of, of what, how long Goliath was doing this stuff. Verse 16, For forty days the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Forty days? So, David is anointed as king. The Spirit comes on him. He goes out into the wilderness where the enemy of God has been taunting the people of God for 40 days and 40 nights. Does this sound like anyone we've heard about in Scripture? Can I get an amen, right? Jesus does the same thing, right? At his baptism, what happens? The heavens open up and God says, this is my son. He's the one. 
This is the rightful king. This is my guy. And what happens immediately? The spirit descends like a dove. And then immediately after that, he's led where? Into the wilderness. For how long? 40 days and 40 nights. To do what? To face the enemy. And just like David, Jesus is not overcome by the enemy, but defeats the enemy. How does the story of David and Goliath end? It doesn't end with him nailing him in the forehead with a stone and falling down. That would be a great ending, wouldn't it? Like he collapses to the ground, the credits roll, people are crying and relating themselves to David, and like, when, when is the sequel coming out? We want to see David kill Goliath, you know, portion two. But the story doesn't end there, does it? David goes up to this beast who's laying on the ground already dead, and he takes his sword out, and he chops his head off. And men, that's not just because we like to see blood and guts in our movies, right? This is, this is way different. This is way more important. Because what does it say in that prophecy in Genesis chapter 3 that we just read? What does it say? That the seed of the woman, who is ultimately Jesus, will crush the what? The head of the serpent. Do you see this story unfolding before our eyes? This is not just a story for little kids about sometimes you can chuck a pebble and you can beat up your giant. No, this is a story about a God who loved you so much that He has come and taken your place to fight your giants for you. This is the Gospel. See, when all of the Israelites said, I am terrified, David said, I'll go. Now, as, much as, I, as highly as I think of you, and as highly as you may or may not think of me, chances are none of us are volunteering for this mission. Unless you just really want it all to end, right? You've been a, if you are a Phillies fan and you've seen spring training and you know the season that awaits, maybe you would sign up to fight Goliath. I'm not sure. But the truth is we wouldn't do it. Why? Because we can't. We cower in fear and we're hiding. We are not David. We're the Israelites. We're on the mountain. We're terrified. Who's going to fight this battle for us? I can't do it on my own. Have you felt this before? I know that you have. And then there's Jesus who steps up in meekness and quietness, not with a loud, flashy trumpet, not with a big procession, and basically just says to the guy next to him, I'll do it. And not only does he say he'll do it, but he sets aside the agents of human warfare and says, I fight from a different means. And he takes his proverbial stone from the creek and he chucks it right into the forehead not just of your giant, but of sin and death itself. And when that giant falls, suddenly the Israelites get up from their positions on the mountain and they say, Goliath has fallen, let's advance against the Philistines. Do you see this? We move because Jesus has won. One author put it this way, we do not fight for victory, we fight from victory. Jesus has won, therefore we move. It is not on you and me to win the battle. Guess what? You are going to face down your giants and you are going to fail. 
There are times in my battles, whether it's anxiety or other things, when I cower in fear and I fail. There are other times it's just a medical reality. We're human and we're broken. We can't win. Sometimes your depression is going to win. Sometimes your illness is going to win. Sometimes your fear is going to overcome you. Sometimes your sin is going to get the best of you. But guess what? It's not dependent upon you. Because there is one who stood in your place, who fought the greatest giant of them all, who slew the giant, and because of his victory, all of the people of God can get up from their perch can take the stone off of them proverbially, the same stone that was rolled from the grave, and can advance. Jesus said this, friends, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. That's my God. I don't know about you this morning. That's my Messiah. He's the one that beat death itself. See, David shows up in the scene very much like a weak weak guy, right? He seems almost like a sacrificial lamb. I can imagine Saul saying, well, maybe if we send this guy out there, they'll feel bad for us. And they'll just call this whole thing off, right? Here comes this little farm boy out. He's just got to sling some stones against your great warrior. I'm able to say, all right, let's just live to fight another day. He's a lot like a sacrificial lamb, isn't he? But yet... God uses a proverbial stance of weakness to destroy the greatest giant. And friends, that is the Gospel. Because to everyone who looked on the cross of Jesus over 2,000 years ago, they saw weakness. And they saw death. And they saw the king who was supposed to be great who was meeting his ultimate demise. And yet they looked with what? The eyes of man. Not the heart of God. Because the Gospel tells a whole different story. That from weakness comes a giant who is slain. Three days later, when they went to do the ceremonial things they needed to do to the body of Jesus, their fallen leader, overcome with despair. I love that phrase. I spoke this phrase to my wife earlier this morning. I didn't even know I was going to read it later. That they were afraid and joyous at the same time. The tomb was empty. Can I translate it 1 Samuel style? The stone hit him in the forehead and it lodged so deep in his forehead that he fell to the ground face first and Jesus emerged and cut his head off. The enemy is defeated. Once and for all, you will experience failure and you will experience success. You will experience forward movement and backward movement in this life because this world is broken and we do face giants. But this I know, Jesus is already redeeming this world. That's His whole mission. Not just a personal salvation that gets you to heaven one day. Jesus is working to redeem this whole world and He's doing it piece by piece. And in the fullness of time, this world will once again be just as God intended it to be. And that's the greatest news that anyone has ever told. But without the resurrection, the story is impossible. See, the resurrection is when God says, God the Father says to Jesus, well done. Your sacrifice is not only accepted, but is applied to everyone who believes. 
So this morning, as you go, in light of the resurrection, in light of the fact that we have a replacement warrior who fights the giant for us, and we are just cowering Israelites, can I suggest to you a separate posture as you face the giants in your life? How about you face the giants with a heart that seeks to honor God, not prove yourself? See, there's two things I know about God. One, God is able to deliver us. But two, God is sovereign. And God is always after his own glory. And how we figure those two things out, you know, theologians have tried to figure it out for millions of years. But this I know. This is how I reconcile it. That God is good and God is in it. And God will be glorified. Whether I fall or rise. Whether I win or lose. Because in the resurrection, Jesus has won the ultimate. This is why David gives this statement to Goliath. When Goliath sees him walk in and says, you're just a little dude. You're like a, you're like a bag of twigs. Is this really what Israel has sent out to fight me? And David says, listen, this battle doesn't belong to me. He says, the battle belongs to the Lord. And in those words is the greatest power that humankind has ever known. If you are here this morning and you are trying to fight your giants on your own, can I show you to an empty tomb? There is power in the resurrection that is far greater than anything you've experienced. I'm not telling you you're going to have a wonderfully perfect life. I'm not telling you your giant's going to go away. I'm not even telling you you're going to be more successful than not. I'm telling you that you are going to have insurmountable joy and hope even in the midst of the great brokenness of this world. See, we see with our eyes, but God sees with his heart. Can I pray with you?